This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm IISE's Michael Hughes here with industrial engineer and health scientist Michael Washington of the CDC. Michael's team has done some fascinating modeling regarding the COVID pandemic. And today we're going to discuss that along with his past modeling efforts for the CDC, which included efforts that helped contain the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and around about 2014, if I remember correctly. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing fine, Michael. It's nice to meet you and I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, it's nice to actually see you. I've talked to you on the phone before, and last time we were talking, it was about the Ebola outbreak. But before we get to that, um, I kind of like to ask a question about models in general. A few years ago, I read a book called Models Behaving Badly by a physicist. The main takeaway that I got from it was models are really necessary for decision-making as tools and as aids but they're still only approximations of reality. They're not really reality itself. So how do we account for that fact in the modeling that you do? Because the stuff that you do is really complex. Yeah, I mean, what the physicist said was correct in that models are an approximation of reality. And that is something that the public has to understand. Um, For a number of people, they think that models are supposed to give you the exact answer. And that's not what a model is supposed to do. Um, If you want something that's exact, you have to actually include everything that's involved in the model. And when you start doing that, now you're talking about reality, no longer a model anymore. And so model is just a simplified version of reality. And it's a tool to help manage uh, possible future outcomes. It's not gonna tell you exactly what you should do or exactly what should happen. Um, That rarely occurs. It's just a tool to help you prepare for what could happen, what could not happen. And one of the main problems um, that's happening now, especially with COVID, when people are saying, you know, these models are are way off or or they're incorrect. The fact that this is a new virus, we're still learning about it. And we we are including as much as we can in our models that is dealing with COVID to get as close to reality as possible. But there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know. And that just makes it very difficult to model. And we just need to help people, especially decision makers, understand that and give a range of outcomes that could occur based upon the models. And that should help them make more informed decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because every time I see a model talked about And not just this, but back when you were working on the Ebola outbreak and we did the story for ISE magazine, there's always a range of outcomes like, okay, 100 or 1,000 deaths. I mean, that's not really, you know, what we're talking about. I'm just pulling those numbers out of the air. But there's never, there will be 73.7 deaths if you do that. It's always kind of a range. And I guess where it falls in the range, that uh, that's like a statistical error or something like that, not a statistical error. We're going to have to edit that part out. Um, the range depends a lot upon the interventions that actually happen depending upon the parameters that go into the model, correct? I mean, there's a lot of things that could occur that could give you a wide range. And one of them is the uncertainty in the variables that we have. And so if you're using a more statistical or mechanicalistic model, 
in which the variables change or is randomly selected as far as what variables being used in a model, then you will get a range of certain outcomes. Um, for deterministic models, which does not include uh, randomization, mm-hmm. um, you give like the best case and the worst case scenario. And that takes into consideration all the unknown that's related to the variables that go into the model. But then there's also the situation that's occurring naturally uh, when we do actually model. Um, when most people actually model, they model the current situation. And then they have to assume what's going to happen into the future. And their assumption could be incorrect. Like one of the assumptions that um, people are making now is that you know, people are going to obey wearing masks or staying at home and those types of things. And the model, a lot of models assume that. We can't actually model what people are actually going to do. And of course, your model is going to be wrong because of that simple assumption. And so, again, people need to understand that those are the types of things that happen with the, with the model, with the model and also with reality. Like you don't know whether I'm going to raise my right hand or my left hand right now. And if the model depends upon whether I raise my left hand and then things change versus my right hand, you just have to kind of guess. And so you'll do a parameter or, or, or an outcome where this is what might happen if left hands are, are raised. And this is what might happen if right hands are raised. Right. And that's very simple because we only have two options and we can model both of them relatively easily. But with humans, you know, things may change if 10% of the population stay home, if 30% or 100%, there's a wide range of possibilities. And if the model is set on 30%, then if the population does something else, then yes, your model is going to be incorrect. But it's up to the modelers to inform the decision makers that that is what's happening. The model isn't incorrect. Well, it is incorrect, but it was based upon these assumptions. Now, if we change the assumptions, chances are, well, if you change the assumptions to what people actually did, chances are the model is going to be correct. So the two models that you and your team worked on, there's one called COVID surge and there is one called COVID tracer. So let's take COVID surge first. Um, Talk about it. How does it work and what does it do and how is it useful? Okay, so with COVID surge, um, the main reason that our team developed the model is that we feared that hospitals would run out of resources um, if the outbreak becomes too bad. And so we created a model that looks at the number of hospital beds that are available, um, non-ICU hospital beds the number of ICU beds that are available and ventilators. And a lot of people are very concerned about ventilators. And so we included that in the model. And so we created a mechanicalistic model, an SEIR model, which stands for Susceptible, Exposed, Infected, and Recovered. And we used that model to estimate the number of COVID cases that would occur, how many would need hospitalization, how many would need uh, to go into the ICU? How many would need to go into, um, how many would need a, um, a ventilator? And then we match that with what the people who are using the model, what resources they have. And that can either be the resources in a hospital, in a region, or even in a country. 
And the model tells you exactly when you're going to run out of resources, how long you're going to run out of resources, and eventually when you're going to go back down to a level that you can um, manage the surge of patients coming back into the hospital, i.e. when you have enough resources again. So if I'm a public health official and let's just say Southwest Georgia and I've got three or four counties that I'm in charge of, I could take the data that I have for the number of non-ICU beds, the number of ICU beds, the number of ventilators, plug this into this model, and that'll kind of tell me roughly when I'm going to run out of resources so I know we need to do something to either flatten the curve or we need to, or both, or we need to either flatten the curve or get more resources in, either more ventilators, uh, set up tent hospitals like they were doing in New York. I think at one point they brought a, a ship into a hospital ship into New York to possibly handle overflow. And that just gives me a, a tool to make my decisions. Yes. And all those different types of things that you mentioned are input into the model. Like there are basically four tabs in this model. And one of the first tab is the hospital resources, which basically asks you how many non-ICU beds you have, how many ICU beds you have, and ventilators. And then you, then you easily go to the second um, tab, and it talks about the hospital state. And the reason we have this in here is that a number of, um, the reason we have this in here is because every situation may be different. Um, people may stay longer in hospitals, you may admit more COVID cases, uh, cases into your hospitals. And so that's what this tab talks about. You know, how many COVID cases are being admitted to the hospital and how long do they stay in non-ICU beds? How many get put into an ICU unit? And how long do they stay on an ICU? Um, ICU uh, how long do they stay in an ICU unit? And also the ventilators, how many will require ventilators and how long will they be on a ventilator? And then we ask you about, you know, the outbreak that's actually occurring. Um, how many cases have you had in the past 14 days? How many cases that you've had over um, the lifetime of the outbreak? And then what interventions are in place? Like if you have very good interventions in place, you can use that to model the future cases that's going to occur. If you don't have good interventions in place, you can also include that also. And then we have you know, different parameters about the disease. And such as things like R0, a lot of people have heard about R0. Mm-hmm. That's one of the inputs that's included into the model, but also the disease stage. You know, how long do people stay infectious? Um, how long do they um, stay sick in the hospital? And so we combine all those data to go into our SCIR model and it produces all those different results that we just talked about. So this model is general enough that I can take it. And if I'm in Zambia or the Southwestern U.S. or wherever I am, I can use this model as a public health official. Yes, that's what the model is designed to do. It's designed to actually look at your specific situation, either from the disease, from, from both the disease perspective and also um, your resources and what you can do. And so this model has been used in a number of states, um, such as in Utah, Florida, Alaska, South Carolina, but it's also been used internationally. 
um, such as in Ethiopia, um, Uganda, Colombia, Peru, Myanmar. And so this is a very diverse model. So if I'm a public health official and I'm just hearing about this model, how do I get my hands on it and use it? Okay, so the model is available for free on the CDC website. And I can send you the link if, if it's possible. Yeah. But you can also find it if you go into your favorite search engine and search COVID surge um, CDC, and it should come up. And most of the time it comes up near the top of the search page. Okay, that's really good. Um... How long did it take to devise this model and how many members on your team were working on it? So right now there are about eight members on our team. And in reality, if we didn't have restrictions, it could take definitely less than two weeks. Um, it could probably take a couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, because we are the federal government, there are some restrictions and we have to get approval to actually post um, almost everything. And so it took us about two, maybe three months from beginning to actually when the model got posted on the web. Wow, that's, that's, that's quite a bit of time, but it's also a lot of stuff that goes into this. So it's definitely not something you can do just overnight. Yes, and I guess one of the great things is that you know, we do work for the CDC. And if there's anybody who knows about COVID or any outbreak or emerging disease or anything, they're going to be within the CDC. And so we consult them as far as the parameters we should use. Mm -hmm. And we can also tap people out into the field in hospitals and ask mm -hmm. them, you know, how long are people staying in ICU bed? You know, what's the percentage of patients um, who are COVID positive coming into the hospital? And so we can gather some of those information put into the model and it makes it a lot more usable almost immediately um, when you open it. So you talk about how you're still gathering information and earlier you mentioned how a lot of the problems with modeling for COVID is there's a lot we just frankly do not know. Have you altered the model yet anyway, in, in any way uh, based on new information that has been coming in? So most of the information that's valuable in the model are the data that's been coming from research, um, such as how many people are asymptomatic, um, what's the transmission rate. And if that changes, you can easily change that in the model. So that's not a problem. Um, some of the more um, mechanicalistic things that may happen, this is probably uncertain. Like, for example, if we find out that there are no asymptomatic cases transmitting the virus, um, we can go in and actually modify the model, but you can actually do some changes yourself by still putting in certain parameters in the model to make that change. So that's something that we would not have to change. So that may have been a bad example. Um, but the model is pretty robust to handle a lot of situation, including new information and changes that occur. Now, on a scale of one to 10, with all the models you've worked at, worked on in your career, how complex is this model? A one or a 10 or somewhere in the middle? This model would probably be probably like a seven. Okay. Um, and, and mainly because it is a relatively new disease. 
And there's just a lot of information um, that we want to include. And we didn't want, we wanted to make sure we didn't lead people down the wrong path or give the wrong information with the model that was being developed. And so um, I'd probably say it, it was a seven. And you mentioned a whole lot of states and countries have used this model. Uh, Utah came to mind because you mentioned Utah. And I remember reading a story probably three or four weeks ago about how they were one of the first states to move into like stage two recovery. Did you did you talk? Have you talked to anybody who's used the model yet? Or is that uh, something that another other members of your team would do? We have talked to a number of people who have used the model. And the reason I mentioned Utah and all those other states is that we've actually talked to them. Um, one of the downsides with the, I guess you call it downside, with the federal government is that we're not allowed to see who downloads the model. Okay. Um, we do keep track of how many downloads have occurred. And so with COVID surge, we've had about 4,000 downloads. Um, of just the model alone and about 15,000 downloads of the, of the manual that comes along with it. And that all occurred between May and, and June. So what kind of feedback have you gotten from the states and the countries that your team has talked to about how they've used the model and how helpful it's been? And have they given you any feedback that has, that have, that has helped the team fine-tune it at all? Um, we have had people provide us feedback as far as ways to improve the model. So that's been very helpful, especially the folks in Alaska. Um, we've also gotten people who have contacted us to learn a little bit more about the model as far as the details um, of how it works. And um, we've gotten feedback from people, even people within our CDC, who have said that this is a great tool. We really appreciate it and they'll be using it. So we've gotten um, a lot of positive feedback. Um, we haven't gotten any negative feedback and that's completely opposite for the Ebola model. We got a lot of negative feedback. <laughs> but yeah, for, uh, for, for these last two models that we've created with COVID, we haven't gotten any negative feedback. Isn't it great to find out that your work really has value out there and to get that kind of feedback, though? Doesn't that just kind of make you want to pat yourself on your near team on the back? Yes, it, it makes our team very excited to see that one that is being used and two that's actually helping to save lives. Because that's what the CDC is all about. It's saving lives. Yes, it is. Well, most of all, preventing people from getting sick first. That's, that's the first thing. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot the prevention part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you said you have gotten some feedback that has uh, that that have helped you, you know, fine tune the model. Could you give me like a specific example? Are you allowed to give a specific example of some feedback that you've gotten? One of the great things about the model is that we try to make it as user friendly as possible. And although we think that it's user friendly, um, when people open it, they have difficulties. Sometimes they have difficulties navigating through it, and so they would give us suggestions as far as. Um, possibly uh, changing the wording on some things or moving some things. I know at the very beginning, um, when we were trying to get it approved, um, there are some issues as far as some of the variables that we were using as far as um, default variables, and we had to change some of those. And so we've gotten a lot of input from a bunch of different people, and we've made changes um, to try to suit as many people as possible. 
So let's move on to the COVID tracer model and the work you all did with that. What does that one do? Okay, so the biggest thing that's happening now, or a lot of attention that's being uh, given with COVID now is contact tracing. And so we thought that there was a need to create a model to estimate how much staff would be needed to do appropriate contact tracing and how many hours would it take and um, how, what impact would it have on the outbreak. And again, it's very similar to the COVID surge model in that it uses a um, SEIR model and we have a number of different inputs that go into the model, very similar to what we talked about with COVID surge. Um, but one of the more interesting things that we added with COVID surge is that we keep track of patients who are at certain stages, um, such as if they, they've just gotten sick, if they're pre-symptomatic but shedding, if they are symptomatic and shedding, and if they recover. And that's important with COVID tracing, I mean, with contact tracing, because you want to find people as fast as possible and isolate them, preferably before they start shedding. And the fact that a number of people are shedding and are asymptomatic makes it very important to find those people early and isolate them. That's really one of the main difficult things about this particular disease, isn't it, though, Michael? Because with Ebola, you know somebody's sick. <laughs> yes, that's definitely true. And we, we knew how to control that um, when someone actually started showing something. And, and with Ebola, you really don't start um, infecting people until you start showing symptoms. And that was one of the things that people thought about COVID at the very beginning was that, you know, we didn't think people could transmit without showing symptoms. And later on, we did find out that, you know, people who are asymptomatic can transmit. And so, yeah, it, it makes it very difficult for the contact tracers um, to actually appropriately isolate people who are are sick, but not showing any symptoms. So have you had a lot of the downloads of the COVID tracer application as well, or has it pretty much been, has the demand been more for the COVID surge? There's been some demand for a COVID tracer. We had about 3,200 downloads, uh, like within the past month of just the software alone, and about 1,400 downloads for the manual. So this is basically within the month of June. Is it too early to have gotten any feedback from people who've used COVID Tracer yet? We have gotten some feedback from some states, uh, such as South Carolina, and also some attention from um, within HHS. And they've given us feedback, and but they've also asked us for help um, related to contact tracing. So we're still in the process of working with them. And so we know that the tool will be helpful, and so um, we'll see the results of our efforts probably over the next couple of months. You know, one thing with contact tracing, I've read news stories about various governments who've developed apps and various uh, private enterprises who develop apps for COVID tra for, for tracing COVID and doing contact tracing. Did y'all have that? Uh, assumption or whatever baked into the COVID tracer model, or is it pretty much more of a using humans to try to do the, co the contact tracing? So it's definitely both. Um, it's not explicitly in there that says if you use a 
an app, you know, this is how effective it is. It's up to you to determine how effective using the app will be in your contact tracing effort. Um, there's been some talk about using the app to reduce the amount of time that people do in either documenting or monitoring um, contacts. And so, like I said, this model is adapted to your situation. If you think it's going to reduce the time it takes for you to monitor a contact by 50%, you include that information in the model. So the same question I asked about the COVID surge model, how complex is the COVID tracer work and how long did it take you all to get that one up? It is just as complicated. And so again, it is a seven. And so, but this time it did not take as long. Um, I want to say it took, I think it went up in June. It probably took about maybe a month or a month and a half. And again, it's all about the process of getting clearance to get it up on the web that took so long. You know, the manual for the COVID tracer talks about um, allowing users to change the default values for three contact tracing strategies. Are those contract straight up? Are those contact tracing strategies defined within the app? And what are those three different strategies? And so with the defaults that's in the Excel file now, um, those are contact strategies that we've researched and found that people have been using around the world. And so you can use those in your situation if you think that strategy matches up to what you're doing. Um, and, and, and I will say that some of, at least I think strategy number three, came from China and their whole system is different from ours um, as far as how well um, people um, respond to the government, how apps are used, uh, their capacity to do certain things. And so that's, that's one of the things that we also try to emphasize with the model and that you have to tailor it to your situation. And this is also something I teach um, in my fourth daytime job, working with uh, Michael Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, where we teach people in lower and middle income countries that we have models that you're able to use, but just because a situation works in New York doesn't mean it's gonna work in a rural village in Zambia. And so you have to modify the model to match your situation. And that's even true within the continent of the, within the uh, United States from state to state. You know, Gainesville, Florida is probably going to be very different from Los Angeles. And so you have to modify the data that's going in to match your situation in order for the model to work appropriately. So those three contact tracing strategies, what exactly could you differentiate between the three? So with the with the first one, it's more or less finding those who are symptomatic and isolating them. Um, that may not work as well because by the time that they're symptomatic, they've already been, um, I guess, out in the wild transmitting. <laughs> so forth. Um, but you're only focusing on those who are symptomatic. And the second situation 
you are, again, focusing on those who are symptomatic and their contacts. And you're asking the contacts as soon as they show symptoms to, you know, isolate yourself, contact the people, um, the public health department, um, so they can start tracking you. Again, that is a slight problem in that by the time they show symptoms, there are some who are asymptomatic and they're already spreading. With the third situation, it is, again, um, isolating those who are, that you find who are sick, but then also isolating the contacts. Um, you tell them to stay at home because by the time they show symptoms, they're already at home and they're not spreading. And you contact the health department and then the health department can start monitoring you. Now, as you can see with each of those different strategies, more and more resources are going to be required. And so the tool takes all of that into consideration. But it also shows the impact of isolating people quickly and early. And it makes a big difference in um, the epi curve. So that's really the best way to reduce the r naught is you get the people isolated as early as possible. And if you're using strategy three, then you're isolating the people who are sick. You're isolating everybody who they've come into contact with over a period of, I don't know how many days, two or three days previously or five days previously, or I can't remember for sure, but you're isolating more people. So you're not waiting for them to get sick. Right. If they wind up that they have COVID, then they're already you know stuck in their apartment or whatever, and they're not getting anybody else sick. And if after a 14-day quarantine, they're fine, then at least they've been taken out of circulation so that on the off chance that they were asymptomatic, they haven't transmitted the disease. Right. And, and in addition, like we talked about before, these are humans. And it's very difficult to predict what humans are going to do. And so we add a variable in there um, such as compliance. How many people are actually going to comply with staying at home or even staying in contact with the, um, with the contact tracer? And, and again, the less people who are compliant, the less likely the strategy is going to work. It's almost like a football play. If uh, the play is designed for the running back to go around the left side of the line and instead to go around the right side of the line where there are no blockers, it's going to get clobbered. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. Right. <laughs> Try to put it into terms that a sports fan can understand. <laughs> so a lot of the work that y'all are doing with COVID kind of developed, you know, out of your work with Ebola back in 2014. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your team did back then. And so um, back in 2014, when the Ebola outbreak was occurring, um, we decided to create a tool to help um, decision makers make decisions. And that's basically what all of these models are. It's used to help decision makers decide what they're going to do. And so we created a model called um, Ebola Response. And we took whatever information that we could about Ebola. And at that time, it was very limited. Um, we had the number of cases that were occurring. But the only other real piece of information that we had was from an article that was like published in 1970. Um, but again, like I said earlier, we have people within the CDC who are the world experts on all kinds of diseases. And so we consulted with them and we were able to create a model. 
And when we um, first created the model and I was running the numbers, um, I was very shocked at what was projected to occur in just two or the three countries. Um, when I told my team lead that, you know, if we take the numbers as is, there could be a half million cases. And if we estimate, uh, if we include the factor of underreporting, there'll be 1.4 million. And he was like, no, run the model again, check for any errors, you know, do all those things to make sure that these numbers are correct. And I went through the model over and over again. And I spent my, at that time it was Labor Day weekend, I spent the whole Labor Day weekend working on that model. And I came back and said, I can't find any errors. Um, everything seems to be correct. And we went forward with you no know, producing that information. And it got out, as you saw, um, news spread all around the world that, you know, CDC was estimating 1.4 million cases of Ebola if we did nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the problem, not only with, um, I guess, the way that it got communicated, but also with media. In that same paper that went out, it stated that, you know, if we did something, in Liberia alone, it would be around, I think we said around 10,000 cases by the end of January. No one recognized that. Actually, I think one paper did recognize that, but everybody was fascinated with the 1.4 million. And unlike with COVID, the COVID models where we got you know, quite a bit of praise and people are happy that we did it, people were upset <laughs> with us without model. Really? Yes. Why were they upset? Just they didn't like the numbers? shooting the messenger type of thing? Or? They thought we were trying to scare people into doing something. And as, as a researcher, and as most researchers, you know, we take pride in making sure our science is correct. Um, we try to stay above the politics. Um, we try not to show any favorites or, or, or want to persuade certain things into happening. We just ran with the best numbers that we had. And we used the, the best tool that we had at that time. And so, um, I mean, we got a lot of criticism, mainly from other models. And it was, and it, and it wasn't that the model was incorrect, which I was so glad. I'm like, there's no mistakes in the model. Yeah. Um, it was that- um, You would have wasted your whole labor day if you found a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> they may criticize us for projecting so far out in the future. And so, and like I said before, you don't know what's gonna happen in the future. With the, with the 1.4, we assumed that whatever was happening today was gonna continue. And this was, I think, in either August or September. Whatever was gonna happen, whatever was happening in August and September was gonna continue to January. I knew that was not feasible. I think everybody knew that was feasible. Something was going to happen. But then you're stuck with making another assumption. Well, what's going to happen? We don't know how people are going to behave. We don't know how government is going to behave, but what type of money is going to come in to support the effort. Fortunately, 
I had to make an assumption as far as how people was going to behave in order to say if we did something. And so it turned out that my assumption was almost correct with what would happen with Liberia. Mm-hmm. And what I predicted what would happen in Liberia if we did something was almost exactly what happened. And so very few people have, have talked about that with that model. Uh, fortunately, our, um, fortunately, the CDC director did recognize that and he actually published um, how accurate the model was. And so that was one of the great things about um, working during that response was that the CDC director was um, very confident in our team's ability to give him information that he needed, but also give him information quickly. You know, when you have something like Ebola that's happening where you have, you know, thousands of people dying every day, you need to make decisions quickly. And with the Ebola model, he was able to use that to push international agencies into contributing into all the efforts in South Africa to help stop the outbreak. So the reason that model was right was because not only because of your stellar work, of course, but they actually paid attention to it and they did something. They poured resources into it. Mm-hmm. It would have also been equally right if we'd had 1.4 million deaths, but you know, the world would have been a lot worse place if that prediction had come forth. Right. So like I said before, it was, it was used as to show people that if we continue to sit on the sideline and not do anything. And we also model, you know, what would happen if we intervene one month from now, two months from now, three months from now. And it showed that you know, every time we delayed, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. The quicker we act, we acted, the easier it would be to, um, to stop this outbreak and not have, have as many deaths. And the one other thing that we did, and this is something that you see now with models that's, that's occurring with COVID, is that we updated the model. We just didn't model it once and then just left it alone. We provided, I think, like updates every three days based upon the data that we have. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have people now who are, are, are looking at models that, or COVID models that were created back in January and saying, well, the model's incorrect. Look what they predicted in January and it's not happening um, here today. Like I said before, things change and we get more information, people behave different ways. and the model, like I said, is not used to predict exactly what's going to happen. It is a tool to be used for a decision. And it has to be updated constantly so people have the most recent information in order to make the right decision but make an informed decision now. And that's what y'all are doing with COVID surge and COVID tracers. As more information becomes available, you're, you're tweaking the model and you're working on it and you're making sure that uh, that things change as because you don't know what data is going to happen, you know, two weeks from now or next week or next month. Mm-hmm. But when you get that data in, you can change the assumptions that are baked into your models. Correct. And the good thing about it is that we don't have to do it. <laughs> we leave it to the states, the public health officials, the Ministry of Health or whatever. They have the model and they can update it as they need it. So that's, that's one of the great things about creating the model in Excel is that most people have Excel on their computer. Mm -hmm. With some of the more complicated models that are out there, 
you need the organization to update it on a consistent basis. That's really cool. So you mentioned earlier in the podcast about your work with uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that if you can. So my my full-time job now is working with uh, Michael Bloomberg's Philanthropies um, Data for Health Initiative. And I'm pretty sure most people know who Michael Bloomberg is. Um, you know, basically a billionaire, used to be a mayor in New York. Um, he has a number of philanthropies, and one of them is centered around healthcare. And so he created this specific entity, um, the Data for Health Initiative, to help countries use their data to make more informed decisions. And there are basically three arms to it. The first arm is um, civil registration and biostatistics. If you don't know how many people are born, uh, how many people died, and what they're dying of, it's very difficult to make a decision to change the health of your community. And then the second part is um, a mobile phone survey in which we're using mobile phones to go out and collect information on non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes, hypertension, um, heart attack injuries, those types of things. And then there's a third component. um, Within that third component, there are four different parts. Um, One is scientific communication in which we teach people how to write articles to inform the public. Another one is a public health bulletin in which we um, help Ministry of Health create publications similar to our MMWR to inform the public about what's happening in in, in their country related to public health. And we have two components that I lead. Um, One is the data deposit program in which I go into low to middle income countries and we teach them how to use their own data and analyze it. And we talk about a number of different things such as, I mean, some of the things are familiar to industrial engineering, like determining what the root cause is of the public health problem. Uh, We use models to help them estimate the impact of certain interventions. We help them look at the interventions from a systems perspective. You know, what resources will be needed? What laws need to be changed? Uh, what's the ecosystem? Do you have enough resources or will you have to purchase more resources? But we also look at it from you no know, political feasibility. Uh, is it politically feasible to implement this intervention? I know one of the ones that, that always scares me, it doesn't scare me, it just, it just causes me uneasiness, is when we start talking to countries about abortions, having safe abortions. And I know a lot of countries are, you know, they have laws against it. And so I really have to ask um, our participants, are you sure we can go forward with this? Right. And, you know, they say yes. But, but anyway, um, but then we also create um, policy brief documents um, that they can distribute to decision makers. And we also help them create presentations. And then after we do all that, we have the fourth component. Um, in which we um, have a policy forum. And with most presentations within the Ministry of Health, they normally get presentations within the Ministry of Health. This policy forum is different than that. We get everybody who could be impacted by this decision into the room and we discuss it. And so, for example, we're working in Zambia with um, we're trying to reduce spina bifida in kids. And 
we know the people who are important within the Ministry of Health. Of course, the Ministry of Health is important. And the hospitals that operate on these kids to correct their problems, you know, they're also important. But the intervention involved adding folic acid into sugar. And so doesn't it make sense to get the sugar company involved and see what they think about this? And so we've gone out and we've talked to the sugar company. What are their concerns about, you know, adding uh, folic acid to sugar? And they had some very legitimate concerns because the reason they exist is to make a profit. And if adding folic acid to sugar would decrease um, the sales of, of, their, of their product, then they're very unlikely to, um, to, to go along with it. And there's a whole list of other entities that could be impacted from this. Mm-hmm. And so we make sure that they're included with this. And so uh, we implemented this program in about 10 low to middle income countries. Those are the only ones that we're focusing on. And we created about 100 plus policy briefs. About 90% of those have been presented to decision makers. And about half of those have actually made a policy change. And when I talk about a policy change, I mean, there's been laws that have been changed, regulations, um, reallocation of resources. And so, for example, in Zambia, um, one of the policies was looking to identify and put more HIV positive children who were not identified, not on treatment, help get them on treatment. And so he dedicated a lot of resources to make that happen due to our policy brief. Um, in Myanmar, um, they were able to secure funding to vaccinate kids in high-risk areas. And they got the funding from, um, from UNICEF and Gavi, um, big international organizations. And so we are making a very big difference in a lot of lower middle income countries. So we're, we're very excited about that. That's really cool. And that kind of speaks to a couple of your passions uh, that I've you know read some of your posts on Connect and ISE Connect, our social media platform for members and things like that, and how you're very passionate about industrial engineering. You're passionate about how industrial engineering can help in healthcare and getting IEs involved in healthcare and also about taking the wonders of industrial engineering and healthcare systems engineering into West Africa. Yes, um, that's, that's always, well, it's been more of my passion ever since um, like 2002 when I first took my international trip to, to Ghana to help with um, polio eradication. And I went there to teach um, the people on the ground about surveillance, about you know, um, collecting data to appropriately identify if there are any polio cases in certain regions. I taught them how to use uh, geographic information software to help map out where all these different outbreaks are occurring. Uh, if there are cluster outbreaks, you know, what's happening there, should we go there and, and look at it? Uh, but also just basic statistical analysis. And so that, that international bug and work has, has really bitten me. And so um, over the past couple of years, working with um, Bloomberg Philanthropies, I've been outside of the U.S. more than inside of the U.S. Um, I've accumulated a lot of miles. I've worked in a number of different countries, and I get a lot of joy from it. And so 
Um, it'll be a sad day when uh, it is a sad day now yeah. <laughs> because of all the travel restrictions. Um, and in fact, um, the outbreak for COVID started um, in, in December and it was getting worse and worse. And I was still traveling and up until March. And in March, I was supposed to go to Sri Lanka and then to Bangladesh and it all got canceled. Didn't happen. It didn't happen. So ever since then, I've been in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't think of any more questions I have to ask you. My uh, list has kind of all been answered. Usually when you talk to an industrial engineer, you can ask a handful of questions that I just ride <laughs> with it. And it makes the interviewing process very easy for me. Mm-hmm. But, but Michael, if there is something that um, I have not asked about these models or your work on COVID or Ebola, or anything else that I should have asked, uh, this is kind of your time. So I guess one more thing that I'm working on, um, I'm, I just got, I guess you call it transferred to another um, center. And so I'm actually working with the global uh, Center for Global Health. Um, before I was stationed in the National Center for Emerging and do not infectious diseases. And so mm-hmm. with that name, you know, COVID being a zoonotic disease, yep. Ebola being a zoonotic disease, so you kind of get an idea of what I was working. Um, but right now I'm in um, a division called the um, the Global Health Protection, uh, Global Health Protection. And the main objective of this division is to basically um, prevent outbreaks from occurring. Um, if they do occur, be able to identify them appropriately uh, and quickly, and then also to respond. And so I'm helping that center now um, evaluate how countries are with those, those different types of things. And so we're focusing on like eight different issues with all these countries. Um, the laboratory surveillance, and, and you see with COVID how important laboratories are. Surveillance, uh, workforce development, developing an emergency operations center. I know with one of your previous podcasts, you talked about in the IMS structure. Um, we use the IMS structure in our emergency operations center to help manage CDC's operation all around the world dealing with um, diseases. And of course, we're focusing on zoonotic diseases, looking at biosafety and biosecurity, uh, looking at immunizations and also antimicrobial resistance. All those things are potential threat, not only in um, countries around the world, but definitely within the U.S. Because as we see with COVID, even with Ebola, disease has no borders. And so we really need to put effort into helping um, other countries and even here in the U.S. be able to prevent, detect, and respond to anything that comes up. So that's what um, I'm doing right now. Um, I've just started in, in this in this new position, and so hopefully I have some more um, good work uh, that I can share with IIE, and I look forward to possibly talking to you again about that. That sounds great. Let's stay in touch, Michael. I've really enjoyed and appreciated the interview. Uh, Good luck with your new gig and your gigs, I guess you can call it, because you're still working with Bloomberg as well. Yes. (laughs) Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.